Hello, my name is Tyler Chisholm, and welcome to a special episode of Collisions YYC Current and Critical, a focus episode where I sit down with local leaders to discuss the topics of the day. Chatting with Mr. David Shepard, MLA, Edmonton City Center for the NDP Party. How are you, David? I'm doing great, Tyler. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. It was, uh, you know, someone from your team, Andrew, reached out to me and we I haven't had a lot of political uh, guests on the show. So I was really excited to have you on and always looking for external perspectives. So having someone come in from Alberta, but being outside of Calgary, I think has got a huge advantage to giving us a different perspective. So maybe we'll just start off with, give, let's give the audience, who, who's David Shepard? And we'll start, we'll start from there. Uh, well, thanks, uh, Tyler. Uh, born and raised in Edmonton. My father uh, came up from Trinidad in 1967. My mom's family came over from the Netherlands in 48. So uh, they met at a little church here in Edmonton. This is where I was born and raised. Grew up sort of in the Christian evangelical community. Uh, uh, not something that I'm really subscribed to anymore. It took a long journey coming out. But okay, it's yeah. uh, but that's my background. Grew up here in the city of Edmonton. Uh, developed a real love for music uh, when I was about 13 years old and had a teacher that taught me how to play by ear. And then that sort of sparked my creativity. Ended up pursuing a music diploma through uh, McEwen here, Grant McEwen here in Edmonton. Uh, spent about a dozen years working as a musician and studio engineer. I play piano, keys, and I sing. Uh, reached a point where I uh, kind of was looking for something new and sort of looking for, uh, basically got tired of being broke. <laughs> so I uh, went back <laughs> to the, the musician uh, story is a real thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, at, at the end of my music career there, I was working in a music store and I was selling keyboards, recording equipment. I discovered I had a knack. I was really good for explaining things to people. And, and sort of talking them through uh, through explaining software or keyboards or features. And so I thought, what can I do with that that would make a living? So I started out in education. Uh, I was going to be a high school English teacher with a music minor. And ended up actually taking a jump over and switched into a degree in professional communication. So did that uh, online through Royal Roads University. He graduated with a Bachelor uh, of Arts in Professional Communication 2014. And sort of worked in that field for over about five years. So I was working in the field kind of before I graduated up that. Mm-hmm. And then in late 2014, kind of uh, had some time on my hands. I've been doing some community advocacy. And I thought, well, you know, I've had an interest in politics for a while. Uh, I'd like to get more involved couldn't seem to get hired in uh, political communication. So I offered to volunteer with the Alberta NDP. They asked if I was interested in being a candidate. Uh, At first I said no. (laughs) Didn't think I was ready yet. Didn't have the experience. Uh, Got talked into it sort of uh, with the idea that I wouldn't be likely to actually win. I was running against a 19-year incumbent here in Edmonton Center. And so the idea was, well, get some experience, kind of learn the ropes a little bit, and then, you know, come back around to it in another four years and take a more serious run. Mm -hmm. And it ended up getting caught in the orange wave back in 2015. Yes, I so I was elected as the MLA for Edmonton Center, uh, re-elected in 2019, and that's where I am today. Well, congratulations on that. Some of the best leaders I've ever met are the ones that were didn't want the <laughs> didn't want the job. It's almost like a classic Indeed. Hollywood plotline, isn't it? The, relu- yeah, the, yeah. The, re- the reluctant leader. So, from your poor point, you're the official opposition from the uh, pers- perspective of critic for health, and hmm. that's a fiery topic these days. And I've listened to some of your <laughs> some of your videos online in the past kind of forty eight hours here, and there's some interesting stuff going on. And I think when you come down to the grassroots of what what affects me as an as an individual healthcare is a really that's very interesting sacred ground and i think it's really being disrupted a lot lately not in a good way I would uh, 100% agree with you, you know, and the the challenge with healthcare is, you know, uh, the tying in with what we've been talking about, there there does need to be innovation in healthcare, 
Right. right. We do need to find new ways to move forward. Uh, healthcare is the most expensive part of the provincial budget. Absolutely, it is. And, you know, the costs continue to rise as we have an aging population, as we have a growing population. So we do need to look at ways we can do things more efficiently. And there are innovations to bring to the table. But in the same way as I was talking about with the community here in Edmonton, the real success for innovation is when it comes from the grassroots and it comes from the grounds up and you are working collaboratively with the people on the ground who really know and understand the systems that they're working in. A top-down approach, particularly the kind of typical corporate approach you see when you're trying to shave a budget and you're sort of forcing in austerity and just sort of cut programs, cut systems, lay people off, that is not going to be a successful way to address something. And it's important to recognize that the healthcare system is not just about running a business. You are dealing with people's lives. You're dealing with people's health. So the human impacts are massive. And not only in terms of the patients and the people that should be at the center of care, and this government likes to talk a lot about patient-centered care, but I don't think they recognize how you get that. But it's not just the patients that are involved. There's a whole lot of people that are part of that system in delivering that care. And how you treat those people, how you work with those people, the atmosphere you create that those people work in are going to have massive effects on the results of the system itself. So what we've seen with this government, unfortunately, is they've taken a very old school, very traditional, conservative approach. This is the same routine we've gone through in the past every time the price of oil drops, where it's uh, where it you know, it's uh, privatize as many things as possible. Look at laying people off. And but the problem is this particular government has do, is doing this with a level of toxicity and disruption like we have never seen before in the province of Alberta. You know, we've had editorials, I think, in all of the major papers in Alberta. We've heard had experts, people across the province calling and saying, you know what, this health minister, <laughs> he is the wrong man for the job. I mean, you got a guy who lost his temper and went to yell at a doctor in his driveway in Calgary because he was that, upset that, about I'm a Facebook be, I'm going to be blunt. That's a tough one to come back from. That, that's, yeah. tough, that's, that's, <laughs> oh, tough, that's, that's tough leadership behavior to come back from. You know, and, and really, you know, it's, it's hard to go into all the details, but I can tell you, having talked with folks and watched what this government is doing, they are being as disingenuous as possible, using every lever at their disposal to essentially kind of bully and muscle their way through to uproot the healthcare system as we know it and replace it with one that in their view is more efficient or that perhaps is going to offer more financial opportunities for some of the folks that they know, which is another traditional hallmark, unfortunately, of conservative governments in this province. But part of the challenge is that they are doing it with such such toxicity. They are being so tone deaf and they are trying to move so quickly that it's creating, for lack of a better term, chaos throughout the system. So we have folks, healthcare workers themselves, from the doctors, surgeons, physicians, all the way down to the very frontline workers, the, the nurses, the healthcare aides, uh, now even the folks that are doing the custodial, you know, that are cleaning hospitals in the midst of a global pandemic, are all have all been under attack. All are feeling incredibly demoralized and disheartened and incredibly frightened for what the impact of this is going to be on patient care. So we've got a system that unfortunately is utterly disrupted in real chaos and people are starting to feel the effects on the ground. We see doctors getting ready to leave the province. We see that, you know, uh, stuff like what came out this week, all of a sudden talking about, you know, folks that are getting infused medications for cancer, you know, for brain injuries, for cerebral policy, for MS, all of a sudden the government's like, oh, by the way, yeah, we're going to make you pay out of pocket for that now. So it's, 
at every point in the system, we're seeing this disruption that's just creating, I think, a lot of uncertainty for people and unfortunately could lead to a real drop in the quality of care. Which when you come right back to it and you talk about the human factor and that individual experience. So I'm going to ask maybe some layman, some Luddite questions on my side. Like, sure. So if the fundamentals of, you know, and I run an organization and sometimes you have to make hard decisions because you don't have, to, you just don't have the money. And like, I'm oversimplifying yeah. for sure. But the other side of it, if you lose the buy-in of your team and you disrupt and you create a really toxic culture, you know, a, a friend of mine in senior HR, she said, the second you lose the discretionary effort, which is that extra, that extra sense of giving, yes. which as a healthcare provider, I think that just you walk in with having that because you know that they are taxed and work to a level that I I, ugh, I I just can't even you know think about anyone I know in that system so I'm just trying to understand the end game of going at it like this and the way you explained and 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 someone who voted blue in the last election and someone who you know considers myself a fiscal conservative I look at somebody's decisions from a cultural perspective from a leadership perspective to what you said I'm like man this isn't going to end well when you run around with the axe and alienate people and cut to try to save money but yet you dis connect yourself from not from your from your the people that are going to kind of put you there next time so i'm really curious about that strategy and is it just been is it is it more is there more going on behind the scenes that i just don't understand as a layman which is very possible sure or is it just so, being a bit reckless like obviously you have a point of view and i'm trying to boil it down to like just a guy you. listening to this going what the heck is going on here yeah there's there's a there's a couple things going on here Tyler. so okay. first of all there are some things that the government is doing that are not unreasonable and that may seem a strange thing for an opposition critic to say, but let's be clear: we the the expenses where the most expensive parts of healthcare are have are are known. We know where the challenges are. Uh, physician compensation is high, right? So that's a it's a considerable part of the budget. So if there are reasonable ways mm -hmm. to reduce costs on physician compensation, that's not an unreasonable thing to pursue. You can do that a couple ways. You can renegotiate how fees are paid. You can ask them to, you can work with them collaboratively to reduce fees or put a hold on increases, which is what we did as a government. Collaborative uh, work with the Alberta Medical Association, and they were willing to work with us to uh, to basically put in savings of about $500 million. So that would have been from where costs would have gone compared to where we were able to hold them to. And, okay. then, uh, okay. and then a freeze again a couple years later. So that was a historic agreement collaboratively. You can move to other things like uh, what are called ARPs, alternative remuneration plans. That's where basically doctors are getting a form of salary in place of fee for service, right? So then you have a bit more predictability in what your costs are going to be. Mm -hmm. So you can do things like that. Uh, hospitals are the most expensive place for people to be, right? A hospital bed is the most expensive place to keep somebody. So if you have people that are in hospital beds that should be in a long-term care bed or a continuing care bed, which is a much cheaper place and frankly a place they would rather be in the community than in the hospital then that's a savings too so working to build more long-term care beds which we did we built about 2,000 across the province so the government is pursuing some of those directions looking at other ways that we sort of reduce those costs those are reasonable things to do now like we're saying, how you do those things. So this government decided that they were going to tear up the tear up the contract with physicians. They decided they were going to go out and publicly vilify them on social media and accuse them of being greedy, entitled, and abusing abusing uh, their billing codes. So immediately they set a toxic atmosphere. They keep that going into the midst of a global pandemic. You're not going to have a lot of success. Right. So there's so there's that part. So there's the parts that are reasonable to do, and that the government is 
doing badly. <laughs> um, but in the case of physicians, I would say it's also part of another, another shift. And there's the bits of this that are somewhat ideological. Now, Jason Kenney, as a premier, he's on the record going back for decades, sort of talking about he fundamentally believes that public delivery of healthcare and actually most public, most public services is inefficient. He's just, that's, you know, back in the early aughts, he was on record sort of saying, you know what? Yeah, provinces should have a lot more freedom under the Canada Health Act to be innovative is the word he likes to use, but generally to have a lot more private delivery and take a lot of this more of this out of the public system. So they've set themselves a goal. They need to, by 2023, show that they're saving a certain amount of money. They are crusading on this. They need to try to demonstrate that they have brought wait times down a certain amount on surgeries because they have made that commitment. So the changes, some of these changes they're forcing through, and I think the speed that they're forcing them through at, and the reason they're bringing this toxicity to the table is because they are desperate to hit those goals. And the only way Jason Kenney thinks he hits those goals is by utterly uprooting the system as it exists. He doesn't, be- he doesn't believe and he can work collaboratively. He doesn't believe that he, that he can get the buy-in of people if he sits down and actually tells them what he wants to accomplish. So he's putting things through like Bill 30, which went through this, 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 uh, this summer, which, you know, all of a sudden now, instead of doctors billing the government directly for their services, all of a sudden corporations can do it. Because he doesn't want doctors in the front seat because doctors make medical decisions. They care about their patients and they care about defending the system. He would rather have a corporate shareholder in there making those decisions and paying a doctor a salary because then you have control. And that's what we see is the biggest part of what they're doing because not only are they making these changes and pushing through all these different elements, they are trying to seize control. That's why they're attacking the Alberta Medical Association. They want them out of the way so that they can they can have better control over doctors. They've passed legislation saying we're going to tell doctors where they can practice in the province of Alberta. They tore up their contract so that now they can change any aspect of how doctors are paid simply on the whim of the healthcare minister whenever he chooses. They have undermined the uh, the independence of bodies like the Health Quality Council of Alberta. So they used to report directly to the Alberta legislature, all 87 MLAs. Bill 30, that omnibus bill, all of a sudden now they report directly and only to the healthcare minister. So all of a sudden he has a lot more control over all the information that gets out about how the system is progressing, how these changes are impacting Albertans. And they're passing around a position paper this past summer where they're musing about potentially taking control of the entire registration system. So of every single health profession college in the province of Alberta, where they've already granted themselves now the power to appoint 50% of the people that sit on those boards. Now, they also would take over potentially the whole registration system, the whole complaint system. So basically, the government then has, they've given themselves through the minister's office, full control over every single aspect of the healthcare system in Alberta. So does this come down to like, listen to you talk? It's uh, you can see you can see the string of events coming through by the way you're they're telling the story, which I, helps for me. It gives me a different perspective, understanding to boil it down to simple terms. Is this private versus public? Is this really where we're? Is this because that's an age old debate in Canada, and it's a very sacrilegious thing to even talk about? But are we moving towards this privatization? As you talk about layers and layers of control. Yeah. Is that as simple if, if this is a if this is a black or white situation, which I know it's not, but are those the is that either side of this coin? So I mean that's 
I guess that's the yeah, like as you say, that's the black and white breakdown of it. Okay. Now, of Which course, I understand nothing's, nothing's black and white. We recognize that yeah, there is you know there's there's there are private aspects involved, right? Doctors are operating essentially as professional corporations and charging a fee for service to the, mm-hmm. the it's publicly paid, technically privately delivered. But the, the difference is right now, you know, doctors, the person making doing the billing and making the decision is the same person directly providing the care. So mm-hmm. it's you know when you take them out, then you put a corporate shareholder in, then all of a sudden those decisions are not necessarily about patient care. It's about profit. And so we do have the government, yeah, moving towards much more privatization. So they're looking at a huge increase in the number of surgeries that will be delivered in private facilities and in private surgical facilities. So some of those currently exist and do a small range of of surgeries. Mm They want to massively expand that. And certainly we're seeing them pursue that in many other areas. They want to privatize the vast majority of lab services in the province of Alberta. Musing about privatizing the entire EMS system. Uh, so uh, ambulances yeah. in the all, province all of Alberta. All things that have been, been in the news quite prevalently. The last yeah, exactly. Too. And then... You know, we see then things like at the UCP AGM last year, you know, their members voting and saying, no, we won't support a resolution that says that we should make sure we're in compliance with the Canada Health Act. And then this year, of course, as you probably heard just recently, you know, uh, a majority of their members voting to support a actual two tier private health care system. Mm-hmm. So saying that, you know what, if you have enough money, you can buy out of the public system, you can get private insurance, get all your services privately. Now, it goes beyond this being just sort of a question of ideology. You have to really look at the evidence. And, you know, uh, healthcare experts and policy experts have been speaking on it, making it very clear that private delivery doesn't actually save any money. That you, it, that you, what you do is you end up drawing yeah, that, resources that's away sto- from that's the public the story, system. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the concern okay. is and, that if we yeah. are in a situation where we're fighting with all of our healthcare workers, where we're fighting with doctors and nurses and anesthesiologists, so we have folks that are already leaving the province, you create an entire parallel private system and expand that. You're going to pull even more of those folks out of the public system so then public delivery suffers. We only have so many surgeons, so many anesthesiologists, and they're going to go in some cases where the where the pay is better and maybe where they're less at the whim of a fairly vindictive and antagonistic government. Well, yeah, if you don't like where you work, you can choose any day to go work somewhere else, and that's yeah. the, that's the power. So curious, on a, on a global stage, is there anywhere that you look to? Like, has anyone got this figured out in a way that maybe, because, you know, we've got our neighbors south of us, which have all kinds of challenges, and obviously that's a big issue in the current in the current election that they're having around healthcare. Where in the world do we look to to say, wow, okay, that that's an aspirational system? And I always like to look to someone who's got this figured out. You know, that's, that's, I'll be honest with you, Tyler, it's still something I'm learning about, sort of the difference with some of the global systems and different approaches. And it can be really challenging to compare one country to another, because there's so many other elements that are involved. So people may point to, you know, some of the European countries where they will have uh, more private delivery you know, alongside the public delivery where that plays a larger role. But those countries also will have a much higher tax rate. They will much also have a much higher robust social uh, safety net, right? And welfare state. So there's a lot of other elements that play into this because we got to recognize healthcare does not exist in a vacuum. Right. Yes. Healthcare is affected very profoundly by other choices that a society makes. And that's one of the challenges we face here in Alberta as well, is that we're seeing some real disruption on other fronts. You know, when we've got the government musing about potentially making it harder for people to get on H or, you know, freezing the H and de-indexing it so people aren't getting an increase with the cost of living each year. Uh, When you're defunding other supports and services, that increases pressures on people and that in turn puts pressure on the healthcare system. 
So it's really, it, I always find it a bit disingenuous when people just want to say, well, look at Australia. They've got two, or New Zealand or wherever, mm-hmm. and say, well, they've got more private delivery and everything seems good there. You've got to really look at all the factors on the table. Uh, fair enough. It's an incredibly complex issue, but yeah, I was curious if there was somewhere that was, you know, you probably have to take bits and pieces from each different, but you have to understand <laughs> sure. fundamentally their ecosystem is different than ours. So I, I, yeah. I, I, pre- I appreciate that comment. Mm. But, you know, and the other concern with this is, you know, even if you want to move in this direction, and I think certainly we could have a conservative government, which could make some more reasonable arguments you know, than what we're seeing from the the UCP. The other concern that comes in then, and this unfortunately has dogged conservative governments in the province of Alberta for for years, for decades, is every time we see the move on this privatization, and to be clear, this is something that they keep coming back to on about a five-year cycle or so, uh, then it involves contracts that are going to friends donors, insiders. And we see then it comes with abuse. So we had the Health Resource Center in Calgary. So again, they got a contract. They were doing fairly, uh, fairly, for, they were doing the more basic kinds of joint replacement surgeries, some other things. Uh, they ended up going bankrupt had to be bailed out by the Alberta taxpayer. We had to pay the bankruptcy and all that sort of thing, finish out that contract. And then it turned out that they were in fact charging more than we was being charged in the public system for the simplest of cases. And we've seen, uh, again, recently, of course, we hear, you know, with the new surgical stuff, we heard about uh, a new new proposal for a private hospital downtown Edmonton to take on a bunch of different surgeries. And, of course, who's at the table meeting in the back room with the healthcare minister as, you know, prominent UCP donors, lobbyists in the back room, you know, audio tape gets released and they're talking with the minister and his staff are saying, yeah, we'll smooth this over, make sure this gets through as quickly as possible for you. And they're looking to try to enshrine a contract that's going to ensure that they can make profit and that it's so difficult for any future government to get out of that they're pretty much guaranteed. So bringing in this level of you know new contracts privatization when we see that kind of stuff in the background too, that adds in another real concern about whether we're really going to be improving the system and what the results are going to be for folks. Well, the challenge with so many of these things is that you've got to run it out, but by then you get the problem gets entrenched and you know it's it's you have to extrapolate it beyond. Has COVID how has COVID contributed to this? Because obviously it's put incredible pressure on the whole healthcare system and I think brought a, an intense focus on the value and benefit that the individuals that work in that system are provided. But yet seeing seems to be still blazing ahead with what sounds like pretty controversial issues. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and this was a conversation I had very early on because a a lot of the big changes that they wanted to push through and their sort of war with physicians started uh, back in December. And I'll be honest, right? I'm not a guy with the healthcare background. So I had to do a lot of learning. So through the month of December, January, I was talking with a lot of physicians, looking up a lot of information, doing a lot of research to understand what these, all these things mean. And so coming into late February, you know, I was starting to hear from doctors who were like, okay, you know, uh, we're, what we're seeing in other areas, other jurisdictions, we're concerned. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. We could be under a lot of pressure. And then once we actually had the contract torn up at the end of February and then official declaration of a global pandemic in March, what I started hearing from family physicians are like, well, wait a minute. We don't have the tools to deal with this. We don't have personal protective equipment. Where are we supposed to get it? It's not available on the market. It's a, There's a global shortage. Uh, they started talking to me about how we know we still need to see our patients, but there's no mechanism in place for the provincial government government to pay us for doing phone visits or email or virtual visits. And then the government came through and said, okay, I'll tell you what, we'll give you this old code from 2008, pays you $20 for, for a visit. While doctors were getting paid $38 for a visit. 
That's the normal fee. So all of a sudden, they're getting paid half of what they normally get paid with none of the extensions that are normally available when you have to see a patient for a longer period of time. So doctors are under incredible pressure. They're seeing massive hit to their income and still trying to serve patients in the midst of a global pandemic. So there was a lot of pressure and chaos there. And indeed, in the in the hospitals and the other healthcare sectors, parts of the healthcare sector, so your nurses, your frontline personnel, your lab techs, all these other folks, yeah, they were bracing for the pressure too. They didn't know what was coming down the pipe. Uh, and there was a lot of concerns about availability of personal protective equipment. We saw a situation where we gave a whole bunch away to uh, Quebec and Ontario and absolutely, let's, let's be generous, let's support where we can. But then all of a sudden, folks on our frontline lines here are getting masks, you know, that are giving them chemical burns and headaches. And, and it's kind of like, okay, are, are we acting in the best interest of folks here? So there was a real tension, I think, in chaos. And we are still hearing that now. Uh, in nurses in particular, you know, I was talking about this in the legislature the other day. I had a chance to talk with nurses across the province last year, you know, when the government decided they were going to uh, pass legislation that kind of broke their contract and sort of to force them to wait longer to negotiate. So I was talking with nurses and they were telling me across the province already, we're working shorthanded really regularly. Somebody calls in sick, there's nobody to cover that shift. So then, you know, we're stressed, you know, and they were telling me, you know, before the pandemic, I feel like I'm not able to deliver the kind of care that I feel I should, I need to. So then we come into a global pandemic situation. And so those pressures amped up. Now let's be clear. Uh, I think all of the healthcare workers across the province have done incredible work in Alberta health services itself also did incredibly good work preparing, organizing, procurement. I think that's evidence of what happens when we make good investments in our public health care system. When you have that little bit of extra capacity, when you get hit with an emergency like this, you got room to flex and you can deal with it. And that's part of the concerns you have when you go to this austerity bare bones approach is all of a sudden you're losing the capacity to deal with uh, unexpected situations. But all that to say, yes, absolutely. What I'm hearing from frontline workers, whether it be physicians, whether it be nurses, whether it be healthcare aides, is that they have been under incredible pressure, have felt a lack of support from government. And this situation isn't going away. We're seeing COVID numbers rise but yet we have the government now announcing that they're going to go ahead with 11,000 layoffs or 11,000 jobs cut from the public system. So it's 11,000 people working right now in the midst of a global pandemic who don't know if they're going to have a job next year. And yeah, I mean, that doesn't help the situation. No, and I just you can't help but empathize. Like, you, like, like we've circled back. This, this, we're still a group of humans having a shared experience. And when you've got that kind of fear and unknown and unpredictability while under high pressure, I don't care what role you're in, whether it's you know in that sector or private sector, that is incredibly like that. That, that kills your yeah. that kills your kills your spirit. Well, these are uh, these are basic principles of change management. Yes, right. They are. So, like I said, it's it's not unreasonable to want to make reforms in the healthcare system. We need to. And I'll tell you, when I talk to doctors, when I talk to the folks in the front line, they are happy to do it. They want to come to the table. They want to have this conversation. They want to bring ideas. But the way this is being approached, I mean, like you said, this is not. This wouldn't be a successful way for you to approach your business. This isn't a way that you would be getting team buy-in, and you would not be improving your profits or your efficiency by treating your staff this way. So the the lack of communication, the disingenuity, you know, the the machinations behind the scenes that are that are going on, you know, it's not creating, I think, the kind of situation we want. And that's been the problem, part of the reasons I think why the healthcare system in part became so inefficient, because we got to remember again the funding for our healthcare system has been riding the oil roller coaster 
for, yes. you know, for decades. So Ralph Klein gutted the system. Right. And, you know, when price of oil dropped in the 90s. So during the 90s, we saw a massive exodus of people, cuts of services, loss of capacity in actual physical infrastructure. We had to spend a bunch of money in the early odds when the natural ga- price of natural gas came up to fill that hole. And after that, then it would just go up and down. So it would go up by 11 percent one year and then drop, you know, a couple years later. And you you. You, you with your business, I imagine, would be the same, right? You don't get success. You don't build efficient systems if your if your investments are going up and down every year, and you don't. And the folks that are trying to build and follow through on your vision don't know what the resources are they're going to have to work with. No, it very it makes it very hard to feel stable and plan and plan for the future. So curious, take it up a notch. And I know healthcare is your is your passion. Obviously, the world you, you live in, <laughs> yes. you live and breathe in. I appreciate it. Um, if you think about just an overall concept of that, like the future of Alberta, the future of moving forward. And you think of government involvement versus corporations and who's going to be the, 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 the horse to be in the race for the future. Is the government creating policies and getting out of the way so corporations can drag us forward? Or is there another philosophy out there where it's like, no, no, the government needs to play a very significant role in, in conjunction with corporations. So it's that private versus government approach, mm. not just in healthcare, but overall when you think about our economy. Kind of pers- perspective on that, because I live on the corporate side, sure. but I believe there's a blend. And you, messes, you, messes, you mentioned some other jurisdictions where the government did get involved and move things forward. It happened in Montreal. It yep. happened, like There's different stories of the right government involvement. So kind of what's your version of that if you look to the future well, overall? You know, we, we look at Alberta. And so right now it's sort of, you know, uh, the, the this particular government uh, doubles down on the oil and gas industry. And again, it's an incredibly mm-hmm. important one. And it's been a major economic driver in Alberta, still going to be part of that mix for a long time to come. But the fact is that industry exists because government got involved. So back in the 1970s, right, you know, uh, Premier Lougheed saw the potential in pulling oil out of the sand, right, in, in, in developing bitumen in the province of Alberta. Mm-hmm. So the government made direct investments to get that ball rolling because private capital and private industry didn't want to take that risk. So government invested, they got the ball rolling, they helped mitigate that risk to the point that private industry was able to pick up that ball and run with it. And what we end up with an incredibly successful industry that, you know, dread that has driven the economy in Alberta for decades. So there is room, I think, for government to get involved with that again. And that's one of the most disappointing things about the rhetoric we heard from this government when they first came in is that they were destroying the very interest that people had had in diversification and the willingness to do that. Because, you know, capital in Alberta has been very focused on the energy industry and in mm-hmm. Calgary particularly. And this it was, is what it, I've heard it was, directly. It was, a tr- it was a trusted formula. It, yeah, it worked exactly. for a long people time. People yeah. want to double down on what's been working. And that's what I heard from entrepreneurs and folks in the innovation industry and stuff like that who, you know, were frankly having to go outside of Alberta to find investment, to find support, yep. to get things started. The folks that were successful here largely were getting capital from elsewhere. So government investment, that's why we brought in the Alberta Innovation Tax Credit, the Interactive Digital Media Tax Credit, helped cover some of those costs, helped cover some of those risks to get more people in Alberta investing in that industry and getting that ball rolling. And it was successful, but the the new government sort of said, well, no, government shouldn't be involved in that. Now they're starting to pivot and come around on that again. But I think that is the place where government needs to be right now. We you're right. Government does not take the place of industry. Government works collaboratively with industry partners. Government needs to talk with them and say, what are the best ways we can help make this a viable, viable landscape? How do we create a rich enough topsoil 
that the kind of industries and economy we want to have can grow. And what we've seen with this government is they just double down on, well, things like the corporate tax cut, you know, so $4.7 billion over the, over the course of their term. And that hasn't worked. None of that money has stayed in Alberta. It hasn't created a single job. They referred to it in the legislature yesterday as a long-term strategy, which is lovely. But we need jobs now. So that's something actually we've been working on. We uh, just put on the website, albertasfuture.ca, where we're putting forward some very specific proposals on how government can get involved in some key areas to help diversify the economy and get some jobs happening now. Excellent. I'm going to check that out. I have not. Uh, it's interesting when you talk about some of the, the incentives and the credits that were put in place. And from a supportive and a remove the barrier and kind of, you know, it's all about incentivizing the behavior you want to see more of. And yes. to remove that, there was definitely a backlash. And like, especially when it came to anything technology related that was thinking about coming to Alberta or had come to Alberta, those directly said, you know, we don't really care about you. Like, to yeah. be honest, that's the message that came out loud and clear. And anyone I talk in the tech sector, that's kind of a universal, like, what, like, what, what message does that send to us who are trying to start something basically from scratch, which is no easy task. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, you know, we spoke, uh, I spoke out pretty early on along with my colleague, Darren Billis, who's our critic on uh, economic issues. And uh, we spoke out pretty early on and said, hey, you, you, you're pulling these credits out. You're doing damage. And a lot of folks, I will give credit, a lot of folks in the tech industry spoke up too. It's very prominent people. And they, they knocked on doors and they shook the tree. So, the, so, you know, we saw the government put together their innovation capital working group. They put out their report and, you know, I was reading portions of that this week in the legislature. It was absolutely scathing, you know, in sort of saying, yeah, you know what, you just destroyed everything that was moving things forward, that was keeping us competitive as a province, and you need to change course. So we see a new uh, innovation employment grant that the government's brought forward, which seems to be a reworked version of Shred from what I can see. I don't know all the details yet. So a little piece put back after a whole lot of stuff was ripped out. We're still well behind, you know, BC, Ontario, other jurisdictions, but at least I will say it appears they are willing to listen. And they're, they're at least recognizing the value. And because, yeah, that's one of the things the report said is we are telling people that Alberta is not a place to come and build a tech company and to come and do that work. Are you, are you seeing that new migration of companies coming into Edmonton at all? Or if a lot of what you're seeing is more grassroots people that are already already have roots there? So I haven't seen a lot of significant new stuff come in. You know, we saw we saw a couple major major players come in, uh, particularly in the video game field uh, with Improbable. Well, you know, that was mm-hmm. a major one that, that came into Edmonton uh, with the IDMTC. Uh, I'm not aware of any significant new, new movements into the Edmonton market, but certainly we are seeing some continued growth uh, amongst some of the some of the companies that are sort of at the mid-level and are growing here. And there's certainly always a fresh crop of startups there. So there's there's good momentum building. But, you know, one of the other things that concern me, when you talk about, you know, Alberta being an inviting place for people to come and build a company, that sort of thing, I think we also have to look outside of the economic issues. And this gets back to sort of what we were maybe talking about, you know, Alberta being having that very conservative, you know, uh, reputation for for over 40 years. But even still, under that government, you know, under the progressive conservative governments, the pendulum would swing, but there was always at least a little bit of a progressive balance there that at least gave folks some hope. And what the channel, one of the challenges we see now with this particular government is that is gone. 
So when we see things like that report this week that came out that, you know, this advisor that Jason Kenney sort of picked himself to sort of advise on the social studies curriculum in the province of Alberta and just utterly regressive, like just it's there is no jurisdiction that is going around saying we all we have to talk less about residential schools. That's going to hurt hurt. That's too too sad for children to learn about or that, you know, we need to pull these other things out or talking about teaching Bible verses as poetry. And it's just it's. I don't see how a modern tech company or even modern young entrepreneurs, these are progressive folks. These are people that have new ideas that are trying to break down old paradigms. When we are building a social atmosphere where we say we don't encourage that kind of thinking here, you know, we, we double down on sort of the that, old that ways. Sends a power, that sends a powerful message that is like we're, we're close to new thinking. I think that's exactly. You Absolutely. Really well. You know, and it's it comes back to this idea that it's not just an economic ecosystem. It is a cultural ecosystem that supports our economy. So it's, you know, we really have to be investing in a lot of different areas. You know, inclusion and diversity is another big part of that, too. We know this current uh, this current recession after COVID, uh, many have referred it to as a she-session. Uh, incredible pressure on women in particular, right, as they've had to, they've absorbed a lot more of the burden of child care, of educating kids at home, and all these issues. And there's been nothing in the economic recovery plan that we've seen from this government to address that. Just today, we released a new child care plan. My colleague, Rocky Pancholi, has been really active on this file and putting together a number of very concrete proposals about how we provide the kind of child care that's needed to uh, free more women to participate in the economy. And let's be clear, uh, women entrepreneurs in the province of Alberta are doing some amazing and powerful oh, work. There are phenomenal stories in Alberta. Areas. I agree. Yeah, I absolutely. Agree. And that's another way we unlock our economy. That's another, th- that's another part of us building a future economy and not doubling down on the past. Getting, getting more people into the game, 100%, 100%. And we've got a huge portion of the population that have an ability to contribute, but they can't because of some of the the, the, the logistical items that you talked about, not to refer yeah. to that as logistical. But at the end of the day, there are just simple facts of family dynamics that in COVID, that's been accelerated. Yeah, absolutely. Am- amplified, amplified, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, you know, equity diversity is a big part of the conversation too. You know, we had the resurgence of the Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter movement back in June, yes. you know, with the, with the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, I, I can say in Edmonton, it's been really encouraging to see how that's been picked up in some sectors. Like I said, we've got a new executive director at uh, at a startup Edmonton and he started up an incredible program a mentorship program for black entrepreneurs so it's been really cool sort of reaching out to various entrepreneurs uh, many of them who are black themselves a couple that aren't but to provide that sort of uh, guidance mentorship coaching for younger black entrepreneurs who want to get into the market because uh, I don't know what your perspective is I guess on the tech innovation ecosystem but from what I've seen it's still it's it's a space that that could see some diversification yet. There's still communities that don't have the same access to the kinds of uh, experience, knowledge, skill building that you need to sort of get into the field. Oh, I think I was listening to uh, it was it was on a global it was on a global stage, but it was uh, an AI conference and talking about the majority. They're talking about biases in data and biases in AI being baked in. And they said, you know, eighty five percent of the people working in, in AI are male, and out of that, it, it, you know, another high percentage were white. Mm. And they just talk about you know inherently some of the the biases that that creates subconsciously of even the individuals being aware of it. And you've got to have multiple perspectives. It's something we've we show we showcase on the show on multiple fronts. Even my own journey of realizing where my own blind spots were. I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't, what I wasn't seeing. And I think that's a journey that I think companies need to take on, but individuals, it's a personal responsibility to do that. And not everyone is at different stages of that journey. 
you know, uh, I had to go through some pretty profound journeys myself. Like I said, being raised in a very conservative fundamentalist uh, Christian home and, you know, having some very narrow views uh, about the LGBTQ 2S plus community and many other things. I mean, that was a, you know, probably about a, a, a 14, 15 year journey for me out of that after I sort of developed my own fairly serious mental health issues and all of a sudden discovered that I was stigmatized in that community and there were no supports and no help for me there. And all of a sudden I went, okay, if I, if they don't have room for me and I don't fit here, then maybe all these other people that don't fit here, there's something wrong with how this system works. So it's, I had to learn that a lot myself and even just coming to terms when understanding my own black identity, because I did not grow up with that at all. And that was something I didn't really get to explore until after I got elected. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, hey, I'm only the third black person ever elected in the province of Alberta. You know, that actually means something to a lot of communities. I need to start building those relationships, understanding my roots and delving into that myself. So it's... Yeah, it's a journey we've got to take in many respects, and I think that's a job government really needs to be taking on. Indeed, we need to be taking on as political parties, looking at how we how we reach out, not just looking at communities as sources of votes, but how do we actually work with to empower communities, to provide them with education, resources, to pursue their own interests and their own ends, and indeed raise their own leaders. And so that's, that's something I've really appreciated having the opportunity to do as an MLA, we get all kinds of resources at our disposal, uh, whether it's monetary, whether that's access to systems, um, you know, doors will open for me anywhere I want to go to talk to people, to learn and to try to open opportunities. So in that sense, it's, it's very entrepreneurial <laughs> in that yes, respect, that, you know, and you get to be very, you can, you can do as much or as little as you choose, I guess, with what you get in this job. I really like it, the thread I took out of and hearing what you're saying about if you look at how we look from the outside and we look at attracting people here, it's not just about, it's so easy to go like, oh, what incentives do we have and what tax you know, breaks do we have or you know, how are we going to, to, to stimulate them to come from an economic perspective. But if you think about mindset and diversity and the perception of what Alberta looks from the outside world, that's a job we need to do as well to be attractive from a cultural and belief structure standpoint, not just financial. And it's so easy to just simplify it and put it into like, what are our incentives? Like, what's our brand and what do we look like and how do we appear to the world to be an open, innovative place? That's very powerful. And I think it's easy to get overshadowed by some of the financial, pure financial pressures that are going on right now in our province. Absolutely. And let me be clear, Tyler. I truly believe that at heart, that is what Alberta is right? That's the Alberta I see every day, you know. Um, you know, as part of our Alberta Futures campaign, you know, uh, you know, Rachel is, is saying, you know, uh, our greatest resource isn't under the ground, it's on top of it. And <laughs> I truly believe it's true. I mean, I see every day uh, a, a growing diversity of people in this province and a growing diversity of views. I see incredible young leaders coming up. I see a, a lot of people at all age levels having incredibly innovative ideas and developing a lot of new things and perspectives. Uh, that fundamentally, I think, is a big part of our identity. But unfortunately, we have a government that is trying to really narrow the scope of how we present who we are as a province. They are doubling down on a lot of very old cultural stereotypes and a lot of perspectives and being incredibly toxic to folks who don't who, who don't fit that or, or come in with alternative views. And that's, I think, the most challenging thing. Because let me be clear, I have nothing against conservatism or conservatives. 
We <laughs> want to have a robust discussion. We want to have a diverse political landscape. But this kind of exclusionary and toxic approach, you know, this is what drove me into politics in the first place, because I watched this on the federal level, uh, you know, under uh, Prime Minister Harper and his government. And of course, Jason Kenney was right there at his cabinet table. And that was the thing. I saw them creating as toxic an atmosphere as possible, because if you could drive enough people out of it, if you convince enough people they don't want to be involved, then all you got to do is keep your core base of support and you get to keep winning. And I said, you know what? I don't want to see that happen. How do we change this? How do we make this a space that people actually want to engage in? Because until we have broad engagement from that true diversity of our population, then those few people that just want to keep getting power and keeping control will get to keep it. And so, I mean, as much as I differ from the government on a lot of uh, different views ideologically, that's probably the biggest thing for me, is that I want to see this be a political space in our province where more people want to engage, where more people to get, get involved, and where we don't have this kind of toxicity in the system. Well, that ability to have healthy debate and healthy dialogue versus this very extreme push to the push to the to the fringes, whether it's right or left. I'm not even saying one or the other, but the farther it is, it's so easy as the person who kind of sees themselves. Well, I like a little bit of the middle. There's almost no, becomes no place for you in the conversation, which does kind of almost exactly what you said from a strategic perspective. I just check out because I don't really want to go to the extremes. I'm in the middle. I don't know what that is. I don't mm. think there's a place for me. There's no place for me in an extreme conversation if I want to be able to go. Well, yeah, but I like some of this, but I also like some of that. And our world doesn't seem to be catering to that type of it's polarization seems to be winning out right now, both north, south and north of the border. Unfortunately, It, it, it is really challenging, Tyler, you know, and I mean, hey, you know, uh, sure, I partake in in political games. Sure. You know, legislature, there's the jousting, there's the back and forth. You know, you're framing your issues in a particular way. You use particular language. You know, a question period is is about theater. Absolutely. But I fundamentally believe that you can do all of those things with a true level of integrity and at core. And then you, while you do those things with on the political stage, then I also love the opportunity to do things like this, sit here and talk with you. And that's why I have, I've been doing my own podcast through our caucus called The Herd, uh, yes. which where I've been I, trying I, to I do checked, that. I checked it out. It's, where, it's a good lesson. Thank you. And yeah, you know, bring in guests to talk about issues, bring in some of the frontline people who are affected, sit down with my colleagues and even indeed sometimes just talk about what just went down in the legislature for the week. Because I fundamentally believe we want, pe- I want people to be more informed. I want them to understand more about the systems. I want people to be critical thinkers in the political sphere, which again is seems to be the opposite of what this government wants based on the <laughs> curriculum uh, recommendations we saw this week. But um, it, it's we want to need to make this space more inviting, more engaging, and indeed we can have some we can have some downright fiery arguments about policy. I'm okay with that. But let's make this a space where, you know, more people are encouraged to get involved, not one where we have the premier or ministers attacking Alberta citizens from the floor of the legislature for having expressed their opinions or where they sort of have their army of issue managers that are out on social media, you know, trying to create that toxicity and trying to shout people down. Let's make room for a real engaged political dialogue. I fully appreciate that, which was, you know, the motivation of this podcast was fundamentally started with how do we expose people to the things that are going on in our province or our city that are amazing that they probably haven't heard about. That is all about giving people different perspectives. And it starts with being informed. That starts with knowing what's going on. And then hopefully feeling comfortable enough to get involved in it yourself. And yeah. I think that goes all the way up to politics. And I messaged you offline. I felt I was a refugee of growing up <laughs> during in Quebec during referendums. And I was so, you know, um, 
beaten down by war torn Quebec because the political system there was so fiery all the time, and Quebecers love to be fiery. I moved to Alberta and I and I removed myself a bit from the conversation. And I know as an active citizen who cares about this province, that's not going to do me any good to help create the future. So I was even part of why when your team reached out to me, I was like, absolutely. Like the only way to get this started is to have a conversation. So I really, really appreciate one, your passion, your dialogue, and sharing me some different views that of, of how things can be looked at differently. I'm really taking a lot of value out of our chat today, and I think my audience will as well. Well, oh, thanks, Tyler. I really appreciate the opportunity. I think uh, as politicians, if we want to truly build this engagement, if we want people to, we have to go into spaces that maybe we typically wouldn't. And we need to find ways to talk in terms that people can understand. And when you were talking about polarization earlier, I mean, that's part of the problem, I think, is that we often use, it's, it's easy to fall into using language that people don't get. So, you know, when we're talking about issues about race and racism, you know, a term like white privilege is, it's, it's an important one. It's, it's a very valuable term. It, it has a lot in it, but it can be a challenging one for a lot of people to understand. Yes, so, you know, we have to find ways to have discussions at multiple levels and in multiple ways and find ways to, I guess, lower, lower the level of anxiety, you know, bring down the threat level for some folks when it comes to having some of these conversations. So I really appreciate that you have a podcast like this where you bring a lot of folks in to talk about this perspective ideas. And I really appreciate that you've given me this chance to do it. It was an absolute pleasure, David. It was great. It was great meeting you. That's what I do love about the, you do a podcast with someone, it's like rapid rapport building. You just throw in there and you just do it, Indeed. which I, I really love. <laughs> well, next time in Calgary, man, I'd be happy to connect. Uh, I, w- I would love to. I'll actually take you up on that. Hopefully just being able to see real people in person feels like a privilege these days too. It's oh. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, absolutely. David, that's wonderful chatting with you. Stay warm and uh, enjoy your weekend. Thanks very much, Tad.